So we have now a young German woman assisting a British Allied prisoner in escaping from a prisoner war camp in Munich. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast all about Second World War, Prison War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we are covering Acting Staff Sergeant Philip Leonard Pepper of the 127th Electrical and Mechanical Company of the Royal Engineers. So hang on. We are doing an escape on Sergeant Pepper. Yes. Yes, it's been a bit of a challenge to look up things on on Sergeant Pepper because it seems when you pop his name into Google... Something else comes up? Something else comes up. There are... I must say, probably 20 pages relating to some sort of album a while ago. But it did make research actually particularly difficult for me on this one. But I, I did my best. Absolutely, absolutely. Did my best. So yeah, let's have a look. I mean, we've got very little pre-war, but what he, is pre-war is interesting. Um, he was born in October 1914. He was a qualified electrical engineer and he was residing in Albion Street in Portslade, which is it's still there. He joined up in January of 1940, which interested me because he wasn't particularly old at this point of joining up, but he was an older conscript, shall we say, which made me have a look at conscription because he's a professional electrical engineer. So I had a look. I thought, I wonder if there was a reason for him potentially joining up later. So I had a look at the conscription and I had a look at the reserved occupation. So I'll do a, do a little look into this. We've actually had two periods of conscription in modern times in the United Kingdom. First was 1916 to 1920 for the First World War. And the second was from 1939 until 1960. The last of those sort of soldiers leaving in about 1963. Now, obviously in the build-up to war, everybody's going, we're not particularly well prepared we need to start preparing so neville chamberlain actually introduced a limited form of conscription in april 1939 so several months before the start of the war and that became the military training act which was passed in may of 1939 that only applied to single men aged between 20 and 22 years old and they were liable to be called up to become effectively militiamen to distinguish them from the regular army now these guys they basically had six months of basic training so they would they would know particularly which field they'd like to go into and then they'd be discharged into a reserve service and they'd be recalled for short training periods to keep them up to date and there'd be an annual camp of course it never got into that because most of those joined up in those six months war was declared <laughs> and they were just basically filtered into the regular army after the 3rd of september 1939 but that Military Training Act basically became the National Service Act the moment the war was declared, and that then changed the conscription to all men between 18 to 41 years. So Pepper, in this instance, would have been very eligible for that. Now, there had been a schedule of reserved occupations because they'd, they'd learned some lessons from the First World War in that massive amounts of skilled workers had gone out uh, into conscripted service, and then that left a void, basically, back here in the UK where they needed to fill those positions. So... In the Second World War, there were reserved occupations being things like coal mining and shipbuilding and railway and dock workers and farmers and teachers. And you could keep on going on. The list is quite extensive. Now, some of those had exemption at certain ages. So, for example, if you were a lighthouse keeper, you were exempt from conscription from the age of 18. But if you were, say, a trade union official, you could only be exempted if you were over the age of 30. So it's 
unsurprising that obviously with the build-up to war and all the technical advantages that you need to try and develop, that engineering had the most reserved occupations. Now, I managed to find an example of the provisional schedule of reserved occupations from January 1939, and his war profession, so electrical engineer, is actually listed in the exemptions for military service. However, it was only exempt in 1939, in September 1939, if you were 25 or over, and he was two months short of his 25th birthday. So I suspect there was an element here that he was either very much involved with the job at the time that had to be finished off, or whether it was close enough that it was arguable as to whether he should stay and, and continue to work on whatever he was working, or whether he joined up. And it's obvious then he did join up because in January 1940 he joins the electrical and mechanical section of the Royal Engineers. Now this is the precursor to what we now know as REMI, which is the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers. But it was actually a separate company back then. REMI came in in October 1942. Their job was essentially to be skilled engineers to maintain, recover, repair vehicles, weapons, equipment. In fact, anything that the armed services need to fight a war these guys needed to know how to fix it so they had to be qualified in and knowledgeable and in practice so they were generally older guys that were doing it but it meant that they had to go to all the different theaters of war in a support role rather than a frontline fighting role which takes us on to his capture now i think it's safe to say he's a man of few words or to the point shall we say because all he basically states is i was captured on the first of june in crete now, we've covered Crete several times. You back in Series 2? Yep, the uh, largest, yep. That's it. And then we've covered together several through Series 4. I think there might be one in Series 5 as well. Obviously, that's a little while ago, so I'm going to do the briefest of recap. Please, by all means, go back and have a look at some of our previous episodes on Crete where we actually do cover it in detail and the background to it all. Effectively, the British had garrisoned the island following an Italian attempt to capture that island in October 1940. The reason we wanted it is it gave the British Navy excellent harbour facilities in the eastern Mediterranean and the airfields there were within range for British bombers to strike the Romanian oil fields, which were the major suppliers of oil and fuel to the German war machine. Now, the Germans also wanted it because... It would give them a stronger foothold in the eastern Mediterranean and it would form a stronger supply line to the war in North Africa. Now, of course, the Germans therefore wanted to launch this attack. So Barbarossa was coming up, the invasion of Russia. They've had the defeat of, effectively the defeat of the Luftwaffe in the Battle of Britain just previously. Hitler's looking for something to do. Very cautious about using parachute troops for the first proper time. But the campaign was sanctioned to go ahead in May, but it could not impact the work they were going to be doing in Russia coming up. So the Germans launched this massive amphibious and airborne assault on the island. Now, they did suffer heavy losses on the first day and into the second day, but essentially they actually pulled themselves together and they made strong gains over the next days and the battle lasted 13 days, which forced most of the Allied fighting force off the island. In sheer numbers, at the start of the campaign, there were about 42,000 Allied personnel on the island against an attacking force of 22,000 Axis troops. Now, whilst the majority of the 6,000 German casualties occurred in the first couple of days, the Allies were actually to suffer 23,000 casualties, including 18,000 taken prisoner. And of course, we've covered prisoners from this. Sergeant Pepper is one of our 18,000 prisoners. So effectively, left behind, they evacuated as much as they can, but as of the 1st of June, if you were still on the island, then sorry, that's where you're staying. Well, when I say staying, he obviously gets moved on relatively quickly. Yes, exactly. So having been captured on the 1st of June on Crete, he was moved on pretty quickly to Salonika. 
Now, we've touched briefly upon Salonika in the past, but just to kind of give a quick recap, it was quite notorious as a bit of a hellhole, to be yes. absolutely frank. The conditions were appalling, survival rate was lower than average, and while there was a prisoner war camp in Salonika, there was also a concentration camp where survival rates were obviously even worse. And in actual fact, there are efforts, I think, still ongoing to establish memorials to these camps because of how appalling the conditions were and the suffering that existed within them. So in Sergeant Pepper's case, I think it was a bit of a transit camp. I don't think he was there for too long. No. Uh, he doesn't state how long he was there, but he had moved on to Moosberg, which is in Bavaria and Germany, by August 41. So at most he was there two months. So he clearly wasn't there for that long. And as I say, he moved on to Moosberg. Now, Moosberg, we've also kind of covered very briefly, but it's worth digging into a little bit further because it's actually quite an interesting camp. Mm -hmm. As I say, we've never really touched upon it that much before. Its official title is Stalag 7A Moosberg. Okay. Now, it was actually the largest prisoner war camp of all of them. What in the period? entire war. In the, oh, really? It was the largest German prisoner war camp in the entire war, and it actually operated for the entirety of the war. Interesting. Yeah. So it covered 35 hectares, which is the equivalent of 50 football pitches. Now, that's sizable. And to give you an idea of how big it was in terms of sheer personnel, at the point of its liberation, there were more than 115,000 prisoners of war. Crikey. Once you take into account all the satellite camps that come into it, the main camp itself, the one that was 35 hectares, had 75,000 prisoners of war in it. Wow. And a further 40,000 attached to it with all the satellite camps factored in. That's incredible. So when I say it's the largest single German prisoner war camp for the Allies in the entirety of the war, we are talking massive here. This is a very sizable prisoner war camp. Now, it operated in a number of ways. It was a holding camp in its own right, but it also had satellite camps attached to it, as I've said, and it also acted as a transit camp for those who were to end up being attached to these satellite camps. Now, these satellite camps are quite often working camps, and that was certainly the case for Sergeant Pepper here. So, Moosberg, the camp itself opened in September 1939, so the first month of the war, and it was actually opened and designed to hold and house the Polish prisoners of war that were captured following the assault on Poland in September 1939. So it was originally designed to just hold 10,000 of them. So you can see how much it expanded over time. And by the time of Sergeant Pepper arriving there in August 41, it was, as I say, acting as a transit camp through which prisoners of war would stay for a month or two, a couple of months before they got assigned to a satellite camp, usually a working camp. That's certainly the case in Sergeant Pepper's experience because he was there from August 41 until October 41. And in October 41, he was sent to Working Camp 2771, which was in Munich. Right. Now, Munich is about 60 kilometres away from Moosberg. So not far, still counts as a satellite camp. So it's not too far away. And he was to remain in the Munich working camp until March 43. Now, during his time there, he was actually to make a couple of escape attempts. So he did make three escape attempts in total. However, his first one wasn't to come until more than a year after he had arrived in the working camp. So he arrived in this satellite working camp in October 41, and his first escape attempt wasn't to be until December 42, 14 months later. 
And he describes it as, I escaped from working camp 2771 at the end of December 42 after dark using a dummy key. I jumped over the wire. Now, you said earlier he's a man of few words and is to the point. Yes. He is so to the point that I can't work out how he used a dummy key to jump over the wire. I can only assume he used the dummy key to get out to the wire and then from there jumped over the wire but he doesn't explain that no no he's, um, it's almost a throwaway escape attempt isn't it he's yeah, just gone exactly. well i did that and yeah that's it he, he seems thoroughly uninterested in his earlier attempts he just covers them because he has to mm. rather than because there was a great deal of detail that he would or could provide on it so he, he says having jumped over the wire i went to munich dressed in overall so not the finest of disguises but you make do with what you have available to you and my intention was to get to Switzerland. However, I was caught about 70 miles from Munich. Now, I looked this up. From Munich to Switzerland is roughly round about 300 kilometres as the crow flies. It's quite close to Austria, really, isn't it? Or much closer to Austria than it is, but obviously that's not a... Not go, a neutral country. Not a neutral country, no. So he has to go considerably far southwest to get to the closest bit of Switzerland. Exactly. And as he says, he was caught around about 70 miles from Munich. Now, he does state that he was travelling by foot at night and during part of the day and had been out for around about a week. So 70 miles travelling at night over a week is not actually terrible. Hmm. But by his own admission, by virtue of the fact that he's left out pretty much every detail other than the fact that he got out and what he was wearing and how far he got. He needed a bicycle. He clearly did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Don't we all? (laughs) Don't we all? Yes. So that was his first escape attempt, which, as I say, took place in December 42. And I must admit, a part of me does wonder if in December 42, hard arsing at a cross country... In pretty bad weather. In pretty bad weather, not a million miles away from the Alps, was perhaps... Not pleasant. Yeah. So having been captured, he, he says, I was taken back to the camp and received very bad treatment on the way. Again, not really going into detail. No, but gives you enough of a flavour to give you an idea of, of his experience, at least. Yeah. So having waited more than a year to make his first escape attempt from working camp 2771, which of course trips off the tongue, he was to make his second attempt only a couple months later on the 10th of March 1943. Now, he'd clearly been put back on work detail and he states that I was returning from my place of work by tram and while it was in motion, I managed to jump off. Now, I've got several questions about this. We have discussed at length before the fact that NCOs and other ranks on their working detail, were under significantly less security. But the suggestion here is that he was basically just put on a tram and left to it. Yes. In which case, little wonder he would just made a leg for it. I mean, the opportunity was right there, if that, if that is the case. Now, he tries to claim, and I have my suspicions on this one, but he tries to claim, in fairness, my intention was purely reconnaissance in preparation for future work with patriots and the underground movement in Munich. However, I was recaptured about 25 miles outside the town and sent back to the working camp. I was free for nearly a week. It's an interesting statement. Yeah. It raises several questions, none of which are answered by him, or in reality, answerable. Correct. Because... While he says my my intention was primarily reconnaissance, my suspicion is that if he'd made all the 300-kilometre journey to Switzerland, he wasn't going to pop back for future reference. Correct. He he was going to keep going. Nonetheless, he has been recaptured just outside of Munich again, 25 miles outside of Munich. So he's made even less progress. Maybe he was just on reconnaissance. Maybe. He's not exactly rushing away here. No, but he's also mentioned 
for future work with Patriots. Mm. So he's obviously got quite a desire to escape because mm-hmm. this is his second time out, all right, after a year's sort of respite, but it's the second time out in a very short period of time. But by saying he's going to go and work with Patriots kind of gives you the idea that he's not actually intending getting to a neutral country, even though that was obviously his first intention in his first escape. So it suggests in the three months in between... Perhaps he started building up networks in the local area. Maybe. Um, And we do know, and we'll cover it in more detail in a second, that resistance groups were starting to pop up in Munich around this time. So we'll get to that in a minute. So on to his third and final escape. He says, While I was at Working Camp 2771 in Munich, I was employed in sweeping the streets. Early in 1942, I made contact with a young German woman who kept me informed of the latest news from London by radio. Now, that in and of itself is interesting because, of course, all citizens under Axis occupation were not permitted to listen to the BBC radio. Doesn't mean it didn't happen, Hmm. but they were not permitted to. Now, typically, the ones you do tend to find were listening to it were those who were occupied. So we're talking about French resistance, Dutch, Belgian, you know, the occupied countries. It is far less common to come across a German woman listening to BBC radio. Particularly in... The Munich area, which is obviously the heart of where Nazism Nazism started, yeah. yeah. He states that this continued until March 1943, so we're talking about over a year, when she arranged for my escape and supplied the necessary clothes. So we have now a young German woman assisting a British allied prisoner in escaping from a prisoner war camp in Munich. Yes. Very interesting set of circumstances. It is. I mean, we've seen it before with helping in the Warsaw, but not within Germany. But that was a German married to a Polish Jew. Correct. In their case. Yes. This is, as far as we can tell, a young, single German woman doing this off her own back. So he escaped from the camp by cutting a hole in the side of the barrack wall, and after cutting the barbed wire, he got out into open field where he met the young woman who was waiting with the clothes, and we went to her flat. Now, he then states, a small underground movement was then started against the Nazis. Firstly, I used to listen three times a day to the BBC news. I'd quickly learned that the Germans had no idea of the real news, so whenever possible I used to type out the news and by night post it up on the local council offices. Now that, in and of itself, is highly dangerous. It is indeed. Even as a prisoner of war, we've stated before that that did not protect you. The Geneva Convention did not protect you from domestic law. And while domestic law was clearly... Questionable. Questionable, autocratic. And all the other words that go with it. Exactly. (laughs) Nonetheless, under domestic law at the time, he could have been executed for that behaviour. So he goes on to state, naturally the Germans would tear it down as soon as they saw it, but I'm quite sure a few people managed to read it, and the next day the police would be posted by the door, but I would pick another office on the other side of the city, and this carried on for quite a long time. Now, I looked into this, Now, we're, so we're talking about escaping in March 1943 into Munich, mm-hmm. and he states that there is a small underground movement, a resistance movement, to the Nazis around this time. So I looked into what resistance movements were going on around this time, and there is one that stands head and shoulders above the others, shall we say. It certainly does. Indeed, it's the only one either of us could find. It is. And it's extremely famous, actually. It is, of course, Sophie Scholl, Han Scholl, and the group that they put together with some of their friends and the professor from the university called the White Rose Resistance Movement. Now, I want to go into a little bit more detail on this, because for those who don't know... Sophie Shaw was a 21-year-old student at what is now the University of Munich, and they established the White Rose Resistance Group, which distributed anti-Nazi leaflets between June 1942 and February 1943. 
So we're talking about a month before Pepper's escape here. Yeah. In that time, they managed to distribute seven different editions. So the first four were kind of around summer 42. Then, of course, people started taking notice, so they had to spread out their timeline a little bit because they were under a lot more pressure. Now, her father was a liberal politician, which was not particularly popular at this time amongst the Nazi ruling party. And in fact, had served time himself a couple of times. On the 18th of February, they were again distributing the seventh edition of their anti-Nazi leaflets, around the university and having put piles of them around the empty corridors while classes are going on they find that they had some left over so Sophie threw them over the banister into an atrium so that they fell down effectively the stairwell into the atrium of the university interesting very ballsy move but unfortunately she was spotted by a caretaker who was a devoted Nazi and had joined up pre-war to the Nazi party and he reported them for this action They were arrested and interrogated by the Gestapo, and for four days they were tortured. It was her brother Hans who ultimately broke first, I believe, and Sophie, upon that, took full responsibility for it. There was a show trial four days after their arrest on the 22nd of February, and they were executed by guillotine at 5pm the same day. Hmm. So when I say show trial, I I really do mean show trial. It was shuffle them through and kill them off. Yeah. So we're talking about the 22nd of February that that took place. He has escaped at the end of March 43, so five weeks later. So this is the context and atmosphere, if you like, that he has escaped into. So while it's risky for him, for this young German woman and the small underground movement that she seems to be a part of, it is extremely dangerous. In fact, this might be one of the gutsiest moves I've seen from a helper yet. Absolutely. Because to do that anyway was extremely brave to do that a month after Sophie Shaw has been executed in the same city is incredibly, incredibly gutsy. And I've got to give them full credit for at least that. Oh, absolutely. Indeed, the similarities between what Pepper describes and Sophie Shaw herself, at at first I did actually wonder if the young German woman he was referring to was indeed Sophie. Yeah. It wasn't because Pepper himself states that this young German woman, he never names her, but he states that this young German woman continued to help him for a significant period of time long after Shaw had been executed and, and of course, met her after Shaw had been executed. So it couldn't have been. Absolutely. And we couldn't find any link between the White Rose resistance movement and his description of the underground movement but nonetheless there's clearly other groups going on other resistance groups at work in munich at this time and full power to them for it absolutely returning to his escape report he says i was assisted in every way by the same woman who helped me to escape we decided it'd be better to inform various business families of the news as well a young german assisted us in this matter by introducing me into many families as a german with an impediment in my speech which they find was necessary because of his accent Now, again, this is interesting because he's been aided and supported by Germans. Now, not all of them may have been in full awareness of his status as a British prisoner, escaped British prisoner of war. Of course. But nonetheless, he has been aided and abetted by German, wealthy Germans as well. He had a lot to lose. And in, as we say, in an area that was known for Nazism, but also we're not even, the Allies haven't invaded yet. You know, Mm -hmm. the war is... I guess not quite a stalemate, but Mm -hmm. certainly it's not going either way yet or the outcome is not yet determined. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Now, he does state that during the two years that he spent in Munich that he was actually caught in a number of air raids. And he, d- he even describes one such incident, stating, About six months after I'd escaped, the RAF put on a great raid over Munich. I was sitting in an air raid shelter with about 600 Germans when suddenly a man came up to me and said, You are British. I've seen you working in the streets. I was taken at once to the control room and held. The same man went to try and find an interpreter, but as soon as he had left the room, I managed to escape and rushed out of the shelter into the street. The raid was still going on, but it was better to face the bombs than to lose my head to the Gestapo. What a statement. What a statement indeed. Again, owing to the confusion from the raid, the police could not carry out a search. And on separate occasions, I was twice buried alive by direct hits to the cellar in which I was hiding in, but always managed to get out. He also states that during the period that he was in Munich that he never had a passport and had amazing luck in not being caught. Now, I have to agree with that because he's basically stating that he moved around Munich for two years without proper papers. Yeah, indeed. Particularly when you consider that he was, he says that he was always on the streets getting to know what people were talking about with regards to politics and somehow managed to keep out of the Gestapo and police searches. Now, he eventually states that he made contact with the Americans in late April 1945 so a little over two years after he escaped, and handed in a number of reports on the intelligence that he'd managed to gather during his time in Munich to American intelligence, including the whereabouts of Nazis who were dressed in civilian clothes, etc., pretending to be doctors in Munich, as well as a list of people who he thought would be helpful to them in the future and keep them well-informed, as they had kept him well-informed over the last two years. What I find really interesting is some of the comments he makes towards the end of his report in which he states, I wish to put on record the amazing courage and endurance of my assistants, who gave me food and shelter the whole time, although they were in constant danger. I would also like to report on the small revolution that took place on the 28th of April 1945. Apparently, owing to this day being a Sunday, no alarm was given in the Volkssturm, and various police did not report for duty when it was known the American army was so close to Munich. And eventually, during the battle for Munich, I went through the lines and identified myself with my AB64 Part 2, which I assume is a piece of paperwork. I think so. Yeah. A tattoo on my arm and a letter addressed to my mother. I gave the officer in charge information about the city and they went through. So that's him now made contact in April 45 with the Americans, the advancing Americans, and giving them intelligence. And eventually on May the 14th, he reported to a South African liaison officer called Captain McIver, requested to be sent back to the United Kingdom and came home via Brussels, arriving in the UK on the 23rd of May 1945. So that's nearly four years after his capture and two years and two months after his escape that he eventually returned to the UK, having spent two years in Munich working with a German resistance group during that time. Which is incredible because he's got no paperwork and as he's thrown away in another giveaway line, he's got a tattoo Mm -hmm. that was identifiable as something to be in the British services or there was enough evidence. What a ballsy man. Absolutely. Presumably it was written in English, had some sort of writing. I guess so. Sergeant Pepper, they should write a song about him. They should. Yeah. Any idea what he did after the war? None. So unfortunately, yes, nothing. I couldn't find him. All I could find was references to a song. There was a few people looking online. There was a couple of forums of people who had also tried to find information. There was a couple of other little things. As he said, he gave a load of names to the authorities that had been involved with potential war crimes and things like that. I did actually manage to find that list. I started to go through it. It was effectively just a list of names. Nothing untoward out of that. But no, he disappears back into obscurity. Didn't find an obituary. Haven't found any other further references. No gallantry awards or anything for his work he just literally disappears into the ether which is a shame given that he seems to have had an interesting war if nothing else and has 
operated behind enemy lines for two years based upon his report. If this is the only bit of evidence we have of, of his operations, then it's a fascinating story to tell and colossal coincidence that he shares it with an incredibly famous song and album from an incredibly famous band as well. But nonetheless, there seems to be no link whatsoever to that particular cultural reference. So I think maybe if anyone does have any information out there, we would certainly mm. love to hear it because, you know, what a fascinating situation to be in. One we haven't come across before. Yes, please do get in touch if anyone does have any information on Acting Staff Sergeant Philip Leonard Pepper. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.